as we continue our study through this amazing book, 1 Peter. Let's see if that works better. There. It helps when I turn the box on. Do you notice that? Yeah. Are you a Christian? Now that's a rhetorical question. When you came into this auditorium, were you a Christian? Were you, when you went to the Walmart that I spoke of earlier, were you a Christian? When somebody had the audacity to pull in front of you in the car, were you a Christian? Let me read you a passage of Scripture here. I'm going to ask you the question again in a moment here. But in 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 8, Peter writes, Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another, love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And who is he that will harm you? if ye be followers of that which is good. The, the progression of truth we've been studying recently is that of submission. We, we kind of culminated that truth last week as we talked about wives and husbands, that, that submission, wives submitting yourself to your husband. And, and then likewise, he talks about the husbands learning proper submission. Is the husband submitting truly to Christ. Then he follows that discussion up by saying the word finally. Finally. Or upon the basis of what we'd already discussed. Finally. I've got some more truth for you, he says. And so I'm going to ask you a question here. You might be saved, but are you a Christian? And we'll talk more about that in a minute. Let's ask the Lord to meet with us. Lord, thank you for your love and your faithfulness. Thank you for this opportunity this morning to worship you. And I trust that, that uh, each heart has already been lifted this morning. Spirit of God, we need you. Everyone in this auditorium, including myself, desperately needs you. Would you work on our hearts? Would you continue to conform us into the image of Christ? And again, Lord, would you comfort those who are sorrowing? Challenge us. Convict us, whereas conviction is needed. Lord, we'll thank you for what you're going to do, for we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. I was 11 years old, I've shared with you many times, where when I heard the gospel, I knew that Jesus died on the cross, and then he rose again three days later. We celebrated Easter every year. So those were not new truths for me. What was new was hearing the fact that that, that payment that Jesus made on the cross, I could take that personally, and I could have that payment of blood personally applied to my sin. And by kneeling down to my father, as in that 11-year-old boy, 
and praying a prayer of faith, I trusted in Jesus Christ to forgive me and to save me. I became saved. Hallelujah. To this day, I'm still amazed that God would save me. I knew me. And he still saved me. Incredible. Simply because I trusted in him. But I got a truth here that you already know. I may be saved, but I'm not always a Christian. Now here's the deal. We generically say somebody that is saved is a Christian. And I'm okay with that. When you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, ba-dum, you're a Christian. But the honest, simple truth is the word Christian means Christ one. Or resembling Christ. Being an ambassador for Jesus Christ. And though I am saved, though nothing's going to change the fact that I'm going to heaven when I die, I'm saved, I don't always act like it. And Peter said, for those of you who are saved, you need to start acting like it. And like I shared earlier, if there ever were a time of importance for Christians, believed or believers, to be Christians, it's today. Finally, as if to say, I've been waiting for this. I've been waiting to let you have this. Finally, upon this foundation of truth, of submission, submitting to those in authority over you by faith, believing that God is using them to conform you into his image. Upon that foundation of truth, he says, I want you to build. First of all, build upon a humble, submissive spirit. That's the foundation. You see, the foundation must be humility. But pride erodes away at that foundation. Some of you, like I, have seen uh, uh, videos of homes after a massive rain or perhaps they were on a cliff one day, <laughs> and the next they were sliding down the cliff into a river or into an ocean because the foundation was eroded. The wise man built his, sand, or built his home not on the sand, but on the rock. That foundation going down deep, a strong foundation. And for the believer, we need to build upon a strong foundation. Of humility. Goes contrary to our natural way of thinking. We think the way up is by lording ourselves over others. If we could just have a higher position so I could have more people under me. The disciples tried that one on Jesus. Lord, which one of us is going to be greatest in your kingdom? And basically said, which one of you is going to serve me more now? Which one of you is going to be more of a servant to others now? Because the servant is the greatest of all. There's that foundation of humility. He says here, upon that foundation, be of one mind. Be of one mind. Now, that's easier said than done. This morning, I were to poll us and say, how many of you, like me, believe that blue is a really good color? Well, about half of us will put our hands up. 
The other half would say, I think green's better. Blue, no, green's better. No, blue's better. Now, when it comes to carpeting, you see, that's when it gets doctrinally important. <laughs> and oh, the crazy splits in church over what are seemingly insignificant things. Peter said, let's get past that. And let's have one mind. Let's be of one mind. Let's get together and think the same thing. But what do you do when half thinks they like blue better and half thinks they like green better? <laughs> um, in Acts chapter 4, and verse 31, 32, And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. And they spake the word of God with boldness. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. There is a definite demonstration of one-mindedness. The disciples, after the ascension of Christ, had met in that upper room. And day after day, for ten days, they're up there praying and studying God's Word. They were unified in their thinking. Were they concerned about the color of the carpet at that time? Heavens, no. They weren't thinking about that. They weren't thinking that they should replace the windows or not. They weren't thinking that they should buy a new piano or not. They were thinking about one thing and only one. They were unified in their thinking. The Holy Spirit empowers us when we are unified in our thinking around Christ. Honestly, how much time this morning did it take for Christ to even have a place in your mind? After awaking this morning, how long was it before the concept of Jesus Christ even became a reality to you? Did you wait until you sang the first song? Are you still waiting? Our unification needs to be around our focus in Christ. He gave some what I call division prevention here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and verse 10, Paul says, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that there be perfectly joined together in the same mind, in the same judgment. How can we do that? By focusing not on the incidentals, but by focusing on Christ. By keeping our focus, the majority of our attention, of our heart around Him and loving and serving Him. You see, the body of Christ must not be divided. How tragic, and most of you, if you've been around churches like this for any length of time, you have become aware of church splits. Some of them not being very pretty. Some of them casting a horrible blight on the community. To are going door knocking, you might knock on somebody's door and say, oh, you're from one of those hypocritical churches? Well, if you were honest, you'd have to say, yes, <laughs> truthfully. Let it not ever be said of this church. And what will cause it, what will cause divisions, is if we take our main focus off of him. In 1 Corinthians 11, 11, 17, Now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not, Paul said, 
that you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you. And I partly believe it, he said. He warned in chapter 12, 1 Corinthians, verse 25, that there should be no schism, no division in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. Can you imagine a church where the main focus was Christ and the main exercise was serving each other? Woo, it would be glory, wouldn't we? Uh, kind of like Hope Baptist Church. Since I've come here, one of the characteristics of this church is that love demonstrated one for another. I love it. And I told Pastor Barkley when I was taking the realm, the, the, the mantle from him and taking this church, I don't want to ever lose that. I want this church to be one that is characterized by its love for one another and by its major focus on him. What are the divisions that are popular out there? Well, I did just a little research. One of the main divisions in churches today is over political differences. Political differences. Oh, I can just, I can hear Paul coming unglued for a church dividing over political differences. How many messages did, Je did Jesus preach over politics? Hello? Our main focus needs to be Him, Christ, and Him crucified. Second one is racial prejudices. The third one is secondary theological differences. I said secondary, not the primaries. Some things we're not going to change on. Some things are going to cause us to split fellowship with others. But the main things, the main things like inspiration and authority of the Scriptures, the virgin birth of Christ, the deity of Christ, the blood atonement of Christ, the bodily resurrection of Christ, the premillennial return of Christ, and a real heaven and a real hell, those things are non-negotiable. But there are so many things that we get in debates about that are secondary, that quite frankly aren't even in the scriptures, but we think that we are bigger than God because we add to the scriptures and say, we are right because. I think we would be appalled, and that's not meant to be a pun, at going to the various churches established by the Apostle Paul. Because going from this church to this church, though he started them and established them, there would be so many little things they differ on. They might even use different invitation hymns. Can you imagine the audacity? They might do all sorts of things differently, like have different kinds of dress standards here than here, different music here than here, all sorts of variances and differences. Because Paul did not come into those churches to establish a culture. He came to those churches to present Jesus Christ and Him crucified and the process of loving one another. We're to have compassion one toward another. It's a beautiful word in the original. It's where we get the word sympathetic. Sympathetic. It means to have a mutual feeling. 
Here's where the rubber meets the road. It means when you're hurting, I should hurt too. It means when you're sorrowing, I should have a sorrowing place in my heart as well. It means when you rejoice, my spirit should rejoice with you. That's what this word means. Have compassion. Compassion is exercising the second great commandment. <laughs> Zechariah 7, 9, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Execute true judgment and show mercy and compassions every man to his brother. Mark 12, 31. And the second is like, namely this, the second commandment. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. Love God first. Love your neighbor as yourself second. Compassion is exercising the second great commandment. Compassion is being willing to enter into another's feelings. Romans 12, 15, Rejoice with them that do rejoice, and weep with them that weep. Compassion should be that characteristic that best exemplifies our church. 1 Corinthians 12, 26, And whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. Or one member be honored, all the members rejoice within it. Do you know what our flesh wants to do? Our flesh, when somebody is rejoicing over something that's happened to them, our flesh wants to be envious of them. Why did it happen to them and not me? That's horrible. Horrible. But that's how we oftentimes react. And then Luke 10, 33 we all know the story, but here's this man that's been beaten up on the road. <laughs> and these religious people come by, and they see him there bleeding and blooding and dying along the road. And these religious folks come by and look at him and lift their noses and walk on by. But wouldn't you know it? A man that's from Samaria, a Samaritan. The Jews looked down their noses at these Samaritans. They called them half-breeds. They called them dogs. He came by, and he couldn't let them just suffer. He got down, and he actually touched him and ministered to his wounds. He put him on his animal, and he took him to an inn. He paid for his expenses. You see, compassion oftentimes comes from unexpected sources. We're to be compassionate, one to another. Next, he says, love as brethren. This word is from where we get, get the English word Philadelphia. And I always chuckle at that. I've been to Philadelphia, and it is not the city of brotherly love. I'm sorry. <laughs> Though that's what it means, it is not that at all. It means a commitment beyond a casual acquaintance. Developing a, a real relationship with somebody. A willingness to stand up on another's benefit or to sacrifice for them. Now, I never was in the military, but I've talked to enough folks who served in the war to understand through them that there is an undescribable bond that's established between that soldier and those other soldiers in their unit when they're all under fire, they're all under fear of dying, there is a bond that's established that sometimes is lifelong 
I don't think it should be just for military folks. You see, we're all in a battle. The devil is out to destroy you. Jesus came to seek and to save. The devil came to destroy. We're all in a battle. We, if anybody should be concerned for one another, it should be us. The next, he says, pitiful. Now, <laughs> you have to go beyond what we think of it in our vernacular today. Oh, she's so pitiful. That's not, no. It means full of pity. <laughs> means to be, literally, it means tender-hearted. It's from two original words put together into a compound word, well, W-E-L-L, -L, <laughs> and spleen. Well-spleened. Well, in this day, they believed that the compassion and feelings originated in the spleen. And so the origination of our feelings should be well. We should be well in our feelings or tender-hearted toward others. It comes also from the word used in Ephesians 4.32, and be kind one to another, tender-hearted. They're the same word. Forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. And it goes beyond the word compassion used earlier. This suggests being very soft-hearted toward the hurting. Being a tender spot. Some of us are... Men's men. We're not emotional at all. But Peter says you need to be. When, when another person is suffering, going through a hard time, especially a brother in Christ, you need to have a tender heart toward that person. Quite frankly, this describes our Lord Jesus. Here he received news from Mary and Martha that his friend Lazarus is sick and is on his way to die. And when Jesus showed up, purposely so, Lazarus had already died. Well, Jesus knew what he was going to do. Jesus knew he was going to bring him back to life. But here's Mary and Martha, and they're weeping, and, and all the others around them are weeping. And you know what Jesus did? Instead of doing what I would have done, I would have said, Will you stop that? Stop your blubbering. I'm going to raise him from the dead in a moment anyway. The Bible tells us, instead of being critical, Jesus wept. He wept. He joined in their emotional response. Next is courteous. This again comes from a compound word. One is what we say friendly and plus mind or having a friendly mind. A friendly mind toward another. The idea is to be kind-natured. Encouraging to be around. Someone who you don't have to worry what they're going to be like when you come see them. Are they going to be like this or be like this? You don't have to worry about it. You just know when, whenever you call them up or whenever you see them on the street or whenever you go to them, you don't have to worry if they're going to be in a bad mood and blow you away like some have known in the past. One individual, I honestly didn't know who I was going to get when they answered the phone. I could get the sweetest, most compassionate person, same person, by the way, or I could pick up and there was a literal demon on the other side. So angry. So angry. Uh, the Bible says there's no, there's no place for that. We are to be courteous. 
Are you courteous in an uncourteous world? Do you stand out in your demeanor? When everybody else is griping and complaining, do you join in with them or are you, what Peter says is courteous. Next, he says, not rendering, that means paying back. Not rendering evil for evil or railing, and railing is a word meaning slander. It means speaking critically of another to bring hurt to them. Not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing. We shouldn't answer evil for evil. Well, but they started it. <laughs> Can you imagine standing before the Lord? And him asking us, remember that argument you got into? Your reply, yeah, but he started it. What did Jesus do? When he was falsely accused, didn't say a word. We should not answer evil for evil or a critical spirit with a critical spirit, but he says, but contrary-wise, or in the opposite manner. In 1 Peter 2, 21 and following, For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, that ye should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who, listen to this, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. There's our example, our standard. We're to bless others even when they're unkind. He says blessing. Blessing. This is the believer's intended response to criticism. When somebody says something bad about us or criticizes us, our flesh wants to let them have it. First of all, we say, who are you to criticize me? Um, we're to bless them. The word for blessing here is from when we get the English word eulogy. Now, this does not mean you get to kill them and say something over them at the funeral. That's not what it means. It means good speaking. Funerals are interesting things. Over the years, you hear some of the most incredible things said about the person who died. And yet, those who knew the person say it was a rat. But at the funeral, they say all these kind words to them. Now, that has nothing to do about the recent funerals we've had. They've all been incredible people. But eulogize means to say something good about. And Jesus says here, we are to bless, to say good things. Matthew 5, but I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Bless them that curse you. Say good things about them. Seriously. Once again, our example. What did Jesus do on the cross? He looked out into the eyes of the very false accusers who put him there. Now it's his turn. He's not going anywhere. Now he can open his mouth and he can cut loose with every criticism. I tend to remember him saying, Father, forgive them. 
blessing others, even when they are unkind. And then he says, knowing that ye are thereunto called. Talk about our calling. We oftentimes talk about somebody being called into the ministry. Well, here, this is a calling for all believers. Knowing there that ye are thereunto called. So our calling by God, simply put, is to be a Christian. That's our calling. For all believers, we are called to be Christians. In this passage, we are called of one, to be of one mind in the church, to be compassionate to each other, to love as brothers, to be tender-hearted and kind, and instead of retaliating evil for evil, to respond with encouraging words. And such a life will be praised by God. I found this interesting. It says that ye should inherit a blessing. Now, the little word that means, in the original, in order that. So you live this kind of life, you become a Christian, in order that you will inherit a blessing. Guess what? This word blessing is the noun eulogia, once again, eulogy, that you should inherit a blessing or a pronouncement of favor by God. You live like a Christian. Why? that you might receive a blessing from God. And I think he's talking about a specific blessing. One in which, when you meet him, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Good job. Good, come on in. Come on in here. Well done. You see, all believers get to go to heaven. Whoo! It's good news. Whoo! All who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, all who are saved, get to go to heaven. But not all going to heaven are Christians. They won't all receive rewards because they didn't all act like Christ. Some will be saved so as by fire, the Bible says. All their deeds will be burned away. Oh, they'll be saved. They'll be in heaven. But barely, if you will. So why are we to act like a Christian? Because I'm looking forward to seeing Jesus face to face. I don't want to disappoint him. I want my life to reflect his image. So what is, number two, the secret to a blessed life? This is the conclusion, though it's three pages long, so sit tight. What is the secret to a blessed life? Well, in verse number 10, for he that will love life and see good days, that's what I want. I want to love my life. I want to see good days. Let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile, let him eschew evil and do good, let him seek peace and ensue it. So a good life apparently is our choice. Now I didn't say the trials that come into our life is our choice. I said the goodness of our life is up to us. 
First of all, refrain your tongue from evil. Don't try and hurt others with your words. The word literally, or refrain, literally means to pause. Hit the pause button. You know what I mean. When you're ready to unload those words, beep, hit the pause button. Refrain. You see, it's a command. This is not a suggestion. This, in the original language, is a command. It's an imperative. Before blurting out that evil, hit the pause button and reconsider who you are in Christ. I could give you way too many examples of times that I missed the pause button. And I said things I should not have said. And probably most of you could say the same thing. In those times, I was not being a Christian. Saved, yes. Christian, no. Next, he said, refrain your lips from speaking guile, or don't be deceitful with your words. Let your yea be nay and your nay nay. In other words, mean what you say. Guile is being deceitful or baiting someone to trap them. Matthew 26, verse 4 and consulted that they might take Jesus by subtlety and kill him. In Mark 14, 1, after two days was the feast of the Passover, and an unleavened bread, and the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by craft. That's the same word. And to put him to death. We were invited many years ago to a church member's home during the week for a meal. Very unsuspectingly, we went there for a meal and had a nice time of fellowship and had a nice meal. Then they pulled out the reason why they invited us. Because they wanted us to participate in a pyramid scheme in which they were involved and they couldn't wait to make money off of us. Be honest. If you want to make money off somebody, tell them up front. Hey, I'm here. How you doing? I want to make some money off of you. Can we talk? Whatever it takes. Be honest with people. For years, I struggled with any salesman. I didn't like salesmen because I couldn't trust them because I always felt like there was an agenda. I don't want to hear how nice my kids are from you. I want to hear how good I look today or how much stronger I look than yesterday. I want to know what you really are going to say. Then tell me about my kids. <laughs> Number three, eschew evil. The word eschew, we don't use very often today. It means to shun, to... Turn away from, to go out of the way to avoid. You're taking this walk, and the sun is beating down on you. And you come around the corner, and there's a dead possum in the road. And he's been in the sun for several days, and he's swelling up, ready to pop. Do you walk real close, hoping he'll pop on you? No, he stinks. You can smell him before you go around the corner. He stinks. You stay as far away as possible. You eschew him what the word means. Of course, Job is where we find this word, Job 2, 3. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job? There is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil. And still he holdeth fast his integrity, although thou movest me against them to destroy him without cause. Job went way around to avoid any evil. I'm afraid the Christian church today has grown far too casual with sin. Instead of going way around it to stay away from it, we get up just as close as we can. We want to smell it. Smell it. We want to 
look at it. We want to examine it. We want to poke it a little bit. Not realizing that as we're doing all that, all that stink of that world is coming on us. Run from sin. Joseph, when tempted by Potiphar's wife, fled. Next is do good. Do good. The thought is simply doing good deeds of kindness. Just do good. It doesn't mean just be good. It means do good. Galatians 6.10, As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are the household of faith. In other words, other believers. Especially do good for the believers. Kind of like Dorcas. Remember her in the Bible? Dorcas passed away. Oh, they were weeping and weeping. and They're bringing all these clothes, showing, showing Peter how much she had done for others. Her whole life was characterized by her good deeds. Next is seek and ensue peace. The word ensue, Old English word, simply means to pursue. Pursue peace. Making peace with others needs to be a priority. I said making peace with others needs to be a priority. Some of you know someone who hasn't spoken to a brother or sister or a long time ago friend for many, many years. Christians are to pursue peace. Romans 12, 18, If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. He means work hard to be at peace, he said. We ought to make peace a priority. Romans 14, 19, Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace, and things wherewith one may edify another. There ought to be an evidence of the Spirit's filling by peace. Galatians 5, 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith. Meaning, as we are filled with the Spirit, one of the evidences will be peace, a peaceful nature. Why do we live like a Christian? Last couple of verses here. Why do we live like a Christian? Okay, we got the idea that just being saved is not sufficient to be a Christian. I have to be saved and live like Christ. That is a Christian. Well, why? What's the big deal? Well, verse 12, it says, because God is watching. Do you know that God is watching us right now? You know, God watched as we sang his songs this morning. As we bowed our heads and hearts in prayer, God was watching. God watches everything we do. Verse 12, for the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. God sees the righteous. The more you walk with Christ, the more of His attention you'll get. His eyes are over the righteous. And God hears the prayers of the righteous. When we got that frantic call from my daughter Amanda when she was in college numbers of years ago now, and she called from a, it was a middle of the night here, it was just late at night there, she called, we learned, from a pickup that she had been driving home from soul winning that had hydroplaned off the road into a ditch that had filled up with water. And the water was coming into the cab of the truck. And she said, Dad, I don't know what to do. And I'm thinking, 
get out of the truck. Now, it's the middle of the night. I'm half awake. And my daughter in California is calling me in Illinois to tell me, I got a life-threatening problem. Uh, in those situations, it's not time to start developing a prayer life. You know what I mean? We ought not wait until the world is falling apart before we decide to start praying. So as I'm speaking to her, I am talking to him. Now, gratefully, by the time I hung up the phone, within moments she called back and she said a trucker stopped and helped us. We're out. We're doing fine. Whew, thank you, God. Why should, we live like, why should we live like a Christian? Because God sees the righteous and he hears the prayers. And then God, the end of verse 12, but the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. God protects the righteous. But at verse 13, and who is he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good? In other words, mistreaters, those that mistreat you, those that mistreat his children, especially the righteous ones, beware. The word harm here means to mistreat, to exasperate, to vex. Psalm 5, verse 12, For thou, Lord, wilt bless the righteous. With favor wilt thou compass him as with a shield. And then lastly, we should be disciples of good. The word followers here. We should be followers of that which is good. It's from the word where we get the word mime. Mime. You know that the guy that paints his face white, has the white gloves, and he does these all these kind of tells a story without words? That's a mime. Um, it means to mimic. Because they love to mimic. They will start mimicking your emotions. They will do everything you do. Whatever you do, they mimic it. Which can be quite aggravating, quite frankly. We are to mimic good. We are to mimic that which is good. In Proverbs 2 and verse 7, He layeth up sound wisdom for the righteous. He is a buckler to them that walk uprightly. You might be saved. But are you a Christian? Are you reflecting Christ in the way that you live your life? Are you erupting in anger when you don't get your way? Or are you a Christian? Are you deceitful and cheating your boss of a full day's wage? Or are you a Christian? Do you get bitter and spiteful over something someone did to you or said about you? Or... Are you a Christian? Verse 12, For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. So I want you asking yourself this morning, I'm saved. Am I a Christian? Let's bow for prayer. I thank you, dear Lord, for your love and your patience with us as we struggle many times not being Christians. I thank you, Lord, for salvation. I thank you, Lord, as an 11-year-old that you saved me.
Praise God. I thank you so much for that. But Lord, so many times I have not acted like a Christian. So I pray, Lord, that today you might do a work in us, reminding us the importance of living our lives because you're watching and because our time is short. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. I, I wonder, I wonder how you would answer that. I think most of the folks in this room are saved this morning. But can you personally say that you're a Christian? Looking back over this past week, have you been a Christian? Are you purposing this coming week to be a Christian? Right now, in the quietness of this moment, I would encourage you, before your God, to confess if you're not, and to ask Him for help to be so in the future. And if you came in this morning and do not even know for sure if you're saved, i got good news for you. Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for your sins. And from us, He asks but that we confess that we are sinners and then trust Him by faith to forgive us and to save us. Oh, He longs to save you if you're not. I wonder, nobody looking around, anybody this morning in this audience that would say, Pastor, I don't know for sure that I'm saved, but I sure want to know. Would you pray for me? Anyone would lift that hand so just me, I could see anybody? Pastor, pray for me. I don't know for sure that I'm saved, but I sure want to know. Would you pray for me? Anyone? Dear Lord, thank you for your love and thank you for this reminder this morning that you want us to live our lives in reflecting you being true Christians. Continue to bless we thank you for what you're going to do, for we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.